and gentlemen, welcome wrestling fans worldwide to Knoxville and the Great Smoky Mountains for the Ron Fuller Tennessee Studcast. Six feet nine inches tall, 265 pounds. This historic podcast from one of the most respected and successful wrestlers and promoters will follow the footsteps of one of the largest and oldest wrestling families on the planet. The Tennessee Stud, Ron Fuller. Through 93 years and four generations. The Stud has arrived. Old school or new fan, this unique broadcast will educate and captivate as Ron details decades of professional wrestling's growth with truly unforgettable stories. I want those people out there at home to hear the stud. Sit back and enjoy the ride with the Tennessee Stud. The Tennessee Stud. You will learn that name. You will remember it. And now, the stud is here. Please welcome the Tennessee Stud, Ron Fuller, and your host, Jeff Maldron. Welcome, everybody, to another edition of Ron Fuller's Studcast. I'm Jeff Maldron, and it is a pleasure to be with you once again as the Tennessee Stud takes us down that road of wrestling history and now the man of the hour the man himself the tennessee stud ron fuller ron how you doing today my man i'm doing great uh like to say uh, uh welcome to 2020 to everybody out there this is uh if you're catching us on the first day of this program's released it's actually new year's day and and uh, just uh real real happy to be here happy to move into another decade my man uh, yeah Crazy, crazy to think, yeah. 2020. Yeah. So, Ron, where are we going today? Well, uh, we're going to break down the development of a new wrestling company today that began on Friday, October 25th, 1974, in Knoxville, Tennessee. Uh, we're, we'll discuss something that I've never talked about before, my goals that I set in 1974 for the year of 1975 that we're just finishing up. We're going to look back at the growth of Southeastern wrestling in 1975 and what did and didn't happen to influence that growth regarding my personal life and my business life. We'll also discuss what I consider to be have been my greatest accomplishments and disappointments during 1975. So uh, we'll end today with uh, my new plan for future Studcast beginning next week. As a matter of fact, I'll be adding a brand new educational segment to each show called the Studs Learning Tree. Uh, as a member of the oldest and largest wrestling family in history and a former owner and booker of territories, I feel like I'm pretty uniquely qualified to do what few po- podcasts uh, are able to do. That's uh, teach fans um, basically what made wrestling great in the old school days. So uh, every stud cats in the future is going to end up with the history of the sport uh, at the end of the show. Uh, it'll be called... Uh, uh, the studs learning tree and uh so i'm really uh, happy about that that will begin with our very next show but uh that's where we're headed today and we're just going to take a good look at uh what happened in 1975 and kind of the goals i had set uh just about uh, this same time of year the first day of the year in 1975 i got the time to sit down and say what do i want to accomplish with southeastern uh, in the year of 1975 and we're going to take a look at that and see kind of how I did uh, during during that year, whether I accomplished what I wanted to or whether I didn't. So if you all are ready, uh, we'll jump right in, my man. We're going to go back to October 25th, 1974, the night I started Southeastern Wrestling. 
And I was really taking a leap of faith, I can tell you that, into a business of my forefathers with no experience and probably the two most important things to have experience in when you're going to run a wrestling company as a booker or an owner. I had neither. I'd contracted to buy the rights to operate a wrestling business for $150,000 in only one city, Knoxville, Tennessee. I borrowed $25,000, the down payment from my best friend, Mac McMurray, who lived in West Palm Beach, where I lived at that time, for the down payment. And I promised to pay John Kazana, the former owner, $500 a week for the next 250 straight weeks or lose every penny I had invested. And he would have the ability then to take back his former company, no matter how much I had spent, how far I got. If I didn't make the final payment, it was going to be his company again. At 26 years of age, that's when all this went down. I was basically at that point the laughing stock of the wrestling business. Uh, owners and bookers and wrestlers, uh, wrestlers too, around the world considered my chances of success to be slim to none. And uh, that's kind of where my journey began. Uh, oddly enough, you know, I really was the laughing stock of the wrestling business. They thought that I had paid way too much for one town, uh, and it would have been way too much for one town if that's all I saw in the future. But I happened to see that this one town had the potential of being an entire territory because of where it was located in eastern Tennessee, because of the television stations in the in the vicinity of Knoxville, and uh, and the area that wasn't being run by people at that point in time. So I consider it to be a good investment. Others considered it to be a really risky investment, including my father, Eddie Graham, and and people like that that just believed that uh, that this didn't have any wings, but uh, I felt like it did, and uh, so that's where we were. That's where my journey is going to begin today. I struggled to get to the end of 1974 after I started on October 20, 25th, uh, just nine weeks later, uh, without missing my first payment in the first nine weeks of $500. I was like, wow, I don't know how I'm going to do this or not. I had purchased the business never realizing that the former owner, John Kazana, had an agreement with the Tennessee Territory, which was based out of Nashville, to pay 10% of the gross gate to their office in Nashville for from every night's gate in Knoxville to receive talent for every card. So he received a lot of his wrestlers out of Nashville. I wasn't aware of that when I purchased it from him. I really didn't do my due diligence. I'm a 26-year-old, uh, not a bright young man at that point, and I uh, thought I had a heck of a deal, but I didn't ask all the questions I should have. So one of them was this. I did not realize that there's a 10% booking fee owed to the Nashville company, and they were going to supply a good portion of the talent but not all of it. Uh, this was only the first mini challenge that's, that's going to seem impossible for me to, to uh, accomplish and to survive and pay for this company. I was able to talk to my grandfather, thank goodness, Roy Welch, one half of the ownership of the Tennessee Territory uh, that was receiving the booking fee, and I talked him into releasing me from this obligation. Uh, and, uh, you know, uh, my granddad didn't... <laughs> He'd, he'd been doing this. This had been an arrangement with not just John Kazana, but his brother, George Kazana, before John. For 20, 30 years, Knoxville had paid this booking fee. And uh, 
Roy didn't walk want to walk away from it, but the fact that I was his grandson, I think, carried a little weight, uh, surely. And uh, and he said, "Okay, I'm going to let you out of it." But then I, I felt really good. Uh, th- th- this was good in the respect that I didn't have to pay the ten percent of my income to another wrestling company. But then he informed me that uh, now you're going to have to find all your own wrestlers. <laughs> That's not so good for a 26-year-old guy. Don't have a lot of connections. Uh, has only one town to run. He doesn't have a territory. This is not looking good for me. I had no knowledge of how to do that, find talent. And the fact that I only won city per week meant that if I could find guys that work for me, they weren't going to get payoff but for one town a week. And that's not going to make them uh, uh, come and stay there. Uh, and I was able to talk a few of them into doing that, but you wouldn't think they would come and stay there at all or even consider it because they're not going to make enough money to make a living as a wrestler. So somehow I had to start right off the bat to find enough wrestlers to run my own town. But it didn't. Uh, it did not solve my next challenge. <laughs> I left Florida wrestling, making about two thousand a week, and arrived in Tennessee with no bookings from any other place than the town that I had purchased, uh, and that was only going to run one night a week. The crowds were extremely small uh, back in those days. Uh, he wouldn't have sold me the territory if he hadn't have felt like that uh, it was going to be difficult for him to continue with it, make money with it, and so. I found out the, the small crowd starting from the first night, night meant that after paying all my expenses to operate the matches in Knoxville, plus the $500 a week payment, I was going to be lucky to have any money left to pay me anything. So all I had to to feed my family was my skills as a wrestler. And I had no place other than Knoxville to work with those skills. I had not checked on working for anybody else. I just assumed that I'd be able to pay my own way in my own company. Uh, The good Lord provided my second opportunity for me to avoid disaster. When when a call came from Jerry Jarrett, the booker of the western part of Roy's territory, Tennessee territory, uh, in Memphis over there. And he offered me $1,000 a show to, as a guarantee, didn't offer me a thousand, he guaranteed me a thousand a show to wrestle in Memphis. Without that call and my wrestling ability, I don't think there's any way I could have survived. I would have been financially bankrupt in less than 30 days had this call not come out from out of nowhere. Uh, So, you know, God bless the good Lord for that. And uh, for Jerry Jarrett, who had the confidence in me that I was a good enough worker, that I could do business for him in Memphis, a $1,000 guarantee per show back in those days was a tremendous guarantee. And uh, I certainly didn't want to disappoint him, and I and I made up my mind that that was not going to happen for him. My next challenge was one I, that I would have never have suspected. The television station that I aired my show on, that was critical to Southeastern Wrestling survival, was the weakest TV station of the three stations in the Knoxville market. As if that weren't enough, the commentator on my TV show, a guy named Big Jim Hess, was horrible. Uh, He was ruining my chances of survival each week by trying to be a star himself and uh, employed by the station as full-time employee, which meant, and he had been doing the commentating on that show for a while, it meant that I was going to have a difficult time firing this guy because he was sitting in the catbird seat. He was on the only station in town that probably wanted wrestling at this point, as far as I knew for sure. 
He was uh, an employee of the station and a valuable employee for them at that. He was a pretty darn good salesman. And, you know, it, it didn't look good for me. Uh, so as we arrive at my situation on January 1st, 1975, uh, I'm going to give you the goals that I set for myself in 1975 to find success in spite of my horrible start as an owner of a new wrestling company. I put back together my relationship. The first thing I wanted to do, my first goal, was to put back together my relationship with my wife and my struggling family at this point. Uh, second was to become a star, a big star in Memphis. I wanted to do well for Jarrett, uh, as well as my grandfather that owned that company over there, or half of it. Uh, third, I wanted to find the wrestling talent I was so desperately going to need. The fourth was to change my television problem entirely. Uh, the fifth was to join the NWA as soon as possible. My sixth goal was to begin to run matches in the huge Coliseum there that had never had a wrestling match in it. Uh, seventh was to open new cities to provide more income for me and my wrestlers and literally hundreds of high schools across the Southeast. I had an idea in mind that I thought would work. Uh, the eighth was to change the perception of the sport in Knoxville and that area from what it had been for many, many years. Uh, very little wrestling, a lot of blood, uh, a lot of fighting. Uh, it, it was not the type of uh, sport that I wanted to be involved with. I wanted to change that de desperately. And the last one was to hopefully stay healthy for the entire year of 1975. That's quite a list to have to accomplish. I seemed like I had pretty much buried myself uh, early on here with my purchase of a town instead of a territory and to have all these problems facing me that I wasn't even aware of. I'm going to find even more before this program is over. So let's see how I did in 1975. Uh, I want to start with the most important part of this entire program for me was my family. Um, my wife and I had not come to Knoxville. Uh, she didn't even come when I moved and bought Knoxville. She stayed in West Palm where we had been living for about four years. And uh, I didn't get her to even come to Knoxville with me until the first of the year, about the January of 1975. So I'm there in town by myself. I've got these things I'm dealing with. Uh, it's not looking really good for my future. My wife and I had been having problems since 1973 because I became a star in St. Louis about that time frame, and we lived in West Palm Beach, Florida. Uh, St. Louis ran every other Friday night, and every other Friday night, I had to fly out of West Palm uh, during the morning, Friday morning, sometimes early Friday morning, so I'd be there early in case something happened, I had to catch another flight. Uh, then I would stay there all the way into Sunday, and then Sunday afternoon, we did televisions. Sometimes I would do three TVs in one day because that's the way their television was set up. So I was gone every weekend, basically every other weekend for the entire weekend to work St. Louis on Friday nights, stay over on Sundays, work that TV on Sunday afternoons, and then hustle to catch the last flight out, which was an old Transworld Airlines flight, thank goodness, was nonstop to West Palm Beach. When I came home, 
I was still on the road every day, except for Mondays when I was wrestling in West Palm. She was home constantly with my two-year-old and my six-month-old sons by herself. Not a good life for either of us at this point. She's really, it's, it's tough to raise kids. It's tough to do it by yourself, even tougher to do it by yourself. Uh, and it's tough to be on the road all the time and not be with your family. So uh, that's why I came to Knoxville alone. Uh, she, she had really, we were about to break up, uh, in 1974 and she finally decided to join me in January, early January of 75. I put her back in college at the university of Tennessee. She would, I'd met her at the university of Miami where I was playing basketball. She was in her last year of school and I pulled her out, uh, and, and uh, she did not uh, finish school, but she she was really close. So when she came, I agreed with her. I, I said, let's put you back in the University of Tennessee. Let you get your degree uh, by the next fall. Uh, we did fairly well until she needed to do extra credit work for the summer. Uh, I made the decision to put Southeastern Wrestling successes on hold and join her every week during the summer of 1975 in an extra credit archaeological dig in Manchester, Tennessee, which is in central Tennessee, not too far between Nashville and Chattanooga. Uh, I'd never done any archaeological digs, obviously, uh, but I wanted to spend the time with her. She was going to have to be gone from Mondays through Fridays doing these digs, come home on the weekend, uh, I wouldn't be able to see my kids at all. I wouldn't be able to spend any time with her. I basically said I'm not going to wrestle any time between uh, until my weekend uh, Knoxville towns run. Knoxville ran on Friday. I usually ran a town there somewhere close on Saturday. So that's what we did. Uh, so I put my career on hold. I put my company on hold and it really sacrificed my company quite a bit that first summer. I could have started running more towns. I would have made myself a little more money, but to me, I wanted to try my best to save my relationship and my marriage. And I hoped this would make a difference in our relationship. Well, it didn't. Uh, she moved out with our sons in the fall of 1975. Uh, and I've never considered what happened uh, there is a failure because I gave it my best shot. I mean, I, I did what I thought I needed to do. I sacrificed my company some. I sacrificed my income. Uh, it changed everything in my life, basically, uh, and to, to give it my best shot. Uh, I had no way of knowing just how much it, it affected Southeastern, but I would have done the same thing again if I had it to do over with. Obviously, this first goal here I did not accomplish in 1975. That's for sure. Ron, if I could just jump in real quick. Uh, two questions. First of all, you mentioned that the uh, you bought the Knoxville territory for $150,000. As you said, it was a one-city territory. Uh, generally speaking, if you had been interested in another territory, and I'm just going to throw one out there as an example. Say you had decided you wanted to go to uh, and buy Leroy McGurk's territory in Oklahoma. Was that uh, a price that was less than your average territory would have gone for because it was just a one city territory. Like if you had bought into McGurk or another territory in the country, perhaps another part of the, the country, how much difference in a price are we looking at? Or do you Quite even know? Bit. Quite a bit. I would think, you know, uh, the 150 for one city, 
that was that was a that was a really really high price. Uh, probably, uh, I I should I, sh- I shouldn't. Well, I can't ever say that I shouldn't have taken the deal because I became so successful and it just turned out to be such a money maker. It was a it was a phenomenal deal. But uh, it, on face value and taking a look at it from the point of being 1975 and what was going on around the country. Uh, First of all, there weren't a lot of territories for sale. Uh, you know, wrestlers, wrestling companies were doing great back in those days, and um, they were making money. So, you know, you couldn't have bought Leroy's territory for six, seven hundred thousand dollars probably back in those days. Uh, you couldn't have bought, just, just take as an example, Gulf Coast, the company that I ended up buying in 1978. Uh, that my relatives, the Fields brothers, are operating down there along the Gulf Coast, uh, portions of Alabama and the panhandle of Florida, uh, over into Louisiana. That territory, I end up paying in 78, $150,000 for the entire territory. And it had probably six major cities rather than one. So, you know, that tells you kind of what that 150 for Knoxville was. It was, it was a lot of money. And, uh, you know, my dad, when he first heard the figure, he was like, oh, boy, you paid way, way more than you should have, you know. But uh, the guy pushed to pushed to made a difficult deal. I'm 26 years old. I'm not used to negotiating for buying business and companies. So, uh, you know, I probably got to beat a little bit on it. But as it worked out, uh, I made a tremendous amount of money on it as well. Well, there you go. Now, second question, and this is, uh, dare I say, a bit of a dicey question. Unfortunately, uh, there is something that you and I uh, have in common. Uh, We have both been through the marital wars. So in retrospect, you're talking about your wife there and your two young sons. Uh, How much of uh, being in the wrestling business played part in the divorce? Uh, If you hadn't been a wrestler, if you'd been Ron uh, Fuller, the real estate agent, do you think the marriage would have survived? Uh, Well, you know, historically, wrestling is one of the most difficult sports in which to remain married. Uh, and and the reason is because wrestlers spend so much time on the road. When you're in other sports, you have a they're team sports. You get, you're on a basketball team, a football team, a baseball team, uh, most other sports. You don't make these trips by yourself. Uh, you are with a group of guys. Uh, you have that camaraderie. Uh, and with wrestlers, you're the, you're an independent contractor. You 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 take care of your everything you need. You have to book your own flights. You make trips by yourself. You stay in hotels by yourself. It's a it's a very lonely business, and uh, and it's a very lonely business for the wife because she's home alone by herself. Uh, it's a difficult business to make it in. A lot of wrestlers got divorces. It was just the way it was. And, and I didn't want to go that route. I felt like I could, could, uh, make it. And I did my best to make it. I act, like I said, I sacrificed the, the entire summer of 1975 to spend every week with her, uh, on the road, living out of a motel in Manchester, Tennessee, so that we could, dig artifacts out of the ground. I mean, you know, it didn't make much sense to me, but at the same time, it was my attempt, my best attempt at making my marriage work. And like I said, if I had to do it all over again, I think I would go the same direction because uh, 
it uh, it was important to me. It was an extremely important thing to me, um, my marriage and my family. So, so, so if you were Ron Fuller, the real estate agent, would it have lasted? And, and I ask you that as someone who's on their third marriage. So I'm a veteran, as I said, of the the marital wars. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, I think uh, I believe I would have had a better chance had I been in the real estate business. One one of the major differences is I would have been home every night. Sure. Yeah. You know, and I was wrestling every Monday. I was obligated to Jerry Jarrett. Uh, I was going to make $1,000 a week when I went to Memphis. He flew me in there, and he paid for my hotel. And I I, I had to go there. And uh, that Monday night, being on the road on Monday night, every Monday night, turned into Mondays and Tuesdays because it wasn't long before, before he said, you know, you're on my TV, and I want to use you in Louisville, Kentucky, too, on Tuesday nights. So... That uh, it started again for her, uh, you know, she said, well, you know, you've bought your own territory. You probably won't have to be on the road nearly as much. You won't be gone at night. All those things seemed like uh, it was going to be working in our favor. And then all of a sudden this Monday, I'm gone to Memphis. That turns into Mondays and Tuesdays. Sometimes he would shoot and he would use me on a Wednesday. He'd want to use me on a Wednesday. And she's kind of back into that where well, you're not really here like you should be. If I had a real estate company, you don't spend a whole lot of time on the road. You're, you do workly. Your, your business is a local business, and it, it usually is uh, built around local homes and local real estate, uh, being commercial or whatever. And uh, it's a totally different situation. So uh, it left me in a real bad position. Uh, my, my marriage ended up falling apart, basically, in the fall of 1975. So, okay, please continue, Ron. All right. Uh, my second goal, let's talk about that, was becoming a star in Memphis. Uh, we've talked about it briefly here already for Jared, uh, the booker, and, and my grandfather, Roy, who obviously owned half of Memphis uh, in conjunction with his partner, who was Nick Goulas. Uh, and uh, my first visit there, my, one, my first match there on December 29th, 1974, they put me over Jackie Fargo, who was a tremendous star in Memphis, Tennessee, or amongst other places around the country. They put me over Jackie Fargo. They put the Southern Heavyweight Championship belt on me December 29th, 1974, three days before the beginning of 1975. Uh, I held that title for more than six straight months, which is a, is a record for a title holder and not being defeated for the Southern Heavyweight Championship. Uh, and uh, many, many times during that six-month period, I filled the 11,000-seat Mid-South Coliseum. Also, the big building in Louisville, Kentucky as well. Every time they sent me to Louisville, we would sell out Louisville too. Uh, I was a heel for the first time in my career. And pretty darn successful one at that. I mean, I, I got over as a heel, obviously, in Memphis. I got over as a heel in Louisville. I got, and I was getting over as a heel in Knoxville as well. Uh, having that belt obviously helped me as well as it helped Jared because I was able to use that belt as the Southern Heavyweight Champion in Knoxville every Friday night. So as long as I held that belt, I had a championship belt that and that was made me a more meaningful wrestler and a more meaningful star. It was well worth it for me to go that route. Uh, when it, I decided to work with my wife over the summer, that summer of 75, Jerry took the belt off me. 
And, you know, I didn't blame him. <laughs> not a darn bit. I mean, what good am I as his champion when I'm not going to work his towns? So, you know, he says, hey, I I'm going to have to take the strap off of you. In fact, I put the belt on the Mongolian stomper who was making his first appearances in Tennessee. Hadn't been working for me at this point and is not going to work for me for a couple of more years. But uh, eventually when he comes to work for me, he's never going to leave. He he's going to become a fixture in Knoxville. So Jared took the belt off me. And, but during this time frame between in the early 70s, I was one of the few wrestlers ever to hold both of those regional Southeastern championships that were recognized by the NWA. One of them being in the state of Florida. They had their Southern heavyweight champion. And the other was in Tennessee. And they had their Southern heavyweight champion. So in uh, 1973, I held that Southern heavyweight championship in Florida for about uh, four or five months straight. And uh, in Tennessee, I held it again, 1975, for six straight months. So I'm going to work for Jarrett in Memphis again in the fall of 75 after my, the archaeological dig is done. And, uh, and I, I guess looking back upon this, I would have to consider my run in Memphis uh, and with Jarrett in Memphis and Louisville uh, and the places that I worked for him, uh, was a, that was, a, to me, a goal that I accomplished in 1975. I did a great job for him. And I think he would say the same thing if anybody were to ever ask him that uh, putting me in that position worked out well for him. And it certainly worked out well for me. We'll talk a little bit about the third goal. And that was finding the talent that Southeastern was going to need to survive in 1975. That goes back to the opening of today's studcast. Uh, you know, my granddad says, OK, you don't have to pay the booking fee. But uh, now, son, you got to find your own wrestlers. So I was like, oh, my goodness, I hadn't really thought about that, you know. So once he'd released me, uh, then it left me having to procure my own guys. Uh, and uh, so I did a fairly decent job at it. Uh, I, I had guys that really liked me, I, and I was lucky. You know, and I had been around for five years at this point. I knew quite a few wrestlers. I had spent that time in St. Louis in 73 and 74 working with some of the stars. So uh, so I'll just give you a list of some of the talent that I was able to not just bring to Knoxville, but talk them into living there in Knoxville and maybe working for Jared on the far side of the state. Uh, or at least just working regularly for me in Knoxville. And uh, there was a, <clears throat> so bear in mind, uh, these guys were all able to work. Uh, uh, they were only going to get paid just maybe one time a week, sometimes two times a week at the most for me. And they, that forced them to, if they're working for me in Knoxville, they still got to cover four or five extra nights a week in order to be able to survive. And here's a list of the guys that did Come for me. Some lived there, but all of these guys, if they didn't live in Knoxville, they they obligated themselves to wrestle for me every Friday night in Knoxville. Uh, Dutch Mantell, John Foley, Les Thatcher, Nelson Royal, Danny Hodge, Dale Lewis, Ron Wright, Don Wright, Rocky Smith, who was the club-footed Inferno, Jimmy Golden, Ricky Gibson, George McCrary. The Assassin, Rock Hunter, Tommy Siegler, Charlie Cook, my brother Robert, Norvell Austin, Don Carson, 
Butch Malone, Homer O'Dell, the superstars, Dick Dunn and Leon Baxter, the wrestling pro. Uh, pretty, pretty incredible list of guys that committed to saying, okay, kid, I'll wrestle for you every Friday night uh, as long as you want to use me. And, uh, you know, it, it saved my rear end, to be quite honest with you. I, I did a much better job of, of getting the guys I needed than I really thought I, I could do. In 1976 now, the following year, once we get through 1975 and we're about to start in the next stud cast in 1976, this list I just gave you is not going to only grow much longer than the one I just read. It's going to grow considerably stronger than the list I just read. So I would consider my ability to recruit wrestlers for Knoxville in 1975, that being one of my goals. I would consider that I probably accomplished that goal fairly well, considering uh, my situation of being a young guy, never having dealt with talent before, never having booked, never owned a company before. Uh, I was I was learning in all different directions, uh, and I was stretched the same way in all different directions. So let's talk for a second about the fourth goal that I set in 1975 in the early part of 1975 for that year. And this one was critical to the success of Southeastern wrestling. I knew from all my wrestling experience that no other type of advertising could even come close uh, to making or breaking your company than your television program. I realized my very first day of TV on Saturday, October 26, 1974, that I was in real trouble with my TV. And, uh, and, and I was truly in real trouble. It started with my drive up to the top of a mountain, of which the TV station was on. It was just in the city limits of Knoxville. It was called Sharp Ridge. And uh, so on top of Sharp's Ridge set WATV. W-A-T-E-T-V. Uh, and it was the former home of John Kazana's World of Wrestling. He's the guy that I had bought it from. He had been on that station for many years. Uh, Les Thatcher took me up there the very first day because I didn't know how to get to the TV station. I didn't know anything much about Knoxville. So Les and I had been friends for many years. And he said, Ron, uh, jump in the car with me. I'm going to ride you up to the TV station and uh, just show you how to get there. And as we climbed, and I mean climbed slowly up a dangerous and tremendously steep incline, I asked him, hey, you know, how do fans get up here in the winter if it snows? You know, And he laughed, kind of like I just did. And he said, they don't. <laughs> he said, you'd have to park back down at the main street of Broadway where we turned off to get up here. And you have to walk if you can. That's what he threw that if you can. So, uh. It, you know, he says, if it's really icy, you know, coming up, he says, you can't drive your car up here and you can't even walk up here. And, uh, you know, then he started telling me stories, you know, about different guys. And he, he told me the one about Tojo Yamamoto, who was a Japanese star in Memphis. And he worked in uh, Tennessee for many, many years. He was a he was a he was an idol there. And uh, he he wore these uh, patented uh, old Japanese wooden shoes, you know, crazy looking little things. And uh, one of those snowy <laughs> days on a Saturday, he was booked up there to work on TV. 
And he tried to walk up that hill, that mountain, basically, uh, with those wooden shoes, and, and he couldn't make it. And so he turned around. He, he failed to get up there. He got about halfway up, and he couldn't get any further. He went back down. He got in his car, and he drove back to Nashville. He just didn't make the TV. And I'm sure that it happened so many times. It was ridiculous when guys just couldn't get there. So it was no laughing matter to me. You know, Les and I were kind of giggling about it. Then the story was funny, but it's no laughing matter, really. I got to thinking, you know, I could see these snowy winter Saturdays ahead where fans would be, there would be no fans sitting in the studio audience because they can't get to the top of the mountain where the studio is. And half the wrestlers wouldn't be able to get up there. So I got to thinking, what do you do then? You know, so... Uh, you know, I got a real problem there. I'm like, gosh almighty, I can't believe this is happening to me. And that was just the beginning of my TV problems. After I witnessed Big Jim Hess, my commentator, <laughs> my television commentator that morning, make a farce of the matches and wrestlers that day, uh, trying to be the star on a card when he wasn't even going to be on the card the next Friday night, I knew I was in trouble. And I also knew why the crowd was so small on my first night as an owner. When you've got a commentator who wants to be the star of the show and he's not going to sell you a single ticket, how in the world can you survive with that? And this guy not only wanted to be a star, he he had a way of of selling himself and the product of wrestling that was absolutely horrible. I couldn't believe how bad he was. I had only seen one wrestling show in Knoxville. That was uh, probably eight months before I bought the territory. And, you know, I didn't have enough time to see what he was all about. Uh, I realized that when I got a chance to see my very first show, the entire show, and I was the owner of the company, I knew I was in trouble. And, and, you know, like I said, I also knew why the crowds were small on Friday night, because you can't build a company around a guy like this. It just doesn't happen. The entire show looked even worse to me because I was accustomed to the best wrestling show in the world at that time. Championship wrestling from Florida, the best commentator in the world, Gordon Soley. I mean, when I compared Gordon Soley to Big Jim Hiss, it was a it was it was a laughing stock. It was it was a ridiculous joke. Uh, so I was almost sick to my stomach after I heard him screaming as guys were throwing punches. And there's another warp your head off hold, and another warp your head off hold. I was like, what is he saying? What in the heck is a warp your head off hold? Uh, so when you got a commentator that's that's doing that during the middle of your matches. And he's trying to be the star and and put wrestlers in their place rather than being scared of them. Uh, and he thinks he's actually tough. You got a real good. You got a real big problem there. Uh, so he 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 would have preferred to be a wrestler. Quite honestly, he would have loved to have been a wrestler. But he was neither an athlete nor a commentator. He was useless on that program. He was worse than useless. He was a detriment to the program in less than 24 hours after taking control of my new wrestling company in Knoxville, I realized you're in deep trouble, kid. And, and I really was in the deepest of trouble. That wasn't the only thing wrong with my new TV commentator. It wasn't the only thing that, that this and the station itself, it turned out to be that 
commentator was a Jim Big Jim S. He was a full-time employee of the station as a salesman and a damn good one at that. Uh, he's the, been a commentator of the show for years, and and he's going to in this position, he's going to likely be impossible to remove from the show. I'm not going to be able to fire a guy like that. He he has been there for years. He's a he's hooked in and uh, and he's a, a big time employee of the station itself. I, it just added to my difficulties and added to my concern about my television. I also learned while at the top of the mountain that the station was by far the weakest station in the market. It had an unbelievably small signal that only got out of Knoxville about 40 miles. That is no distance at all. That What that meant is I cannot ever take Knoxville if I'm on this television and be able to run four or five towns a week off that TV because it doesn't go but 40 miles and there's not 10, there's not three towns within 40 miles of Knoxville big enough to run wrestling in. So I'm, I'm pretty devastated at this point. I mean, uh, you know, I was so depressed before I left the station that the ride down the mountain felt like I was descending into hell, man. I was like, wow, what am I going to do here? So this TV discovery, it brought me down. More than the minuscule tiny houses I was having in Chilhowee Park every Friday night toward the end of 1974. I had a much better chance, I figured, of solving my crowds at the matches because I had a knowledge of wrestling and booking than I did at solving all the problems associated with my TV in which I knew nothing about. So uh, maybe that horrible feeling that I had learning about my TV problems inspired me to do something with one move, one single move that would change all my television problems. Uh, it sent me down the mountain that day thinking about uh, other TVs in Knoxville. I need to get on another channel. I need to get a, into a, a station that's got a bigger signal. So I worked at it. And less than seven months later, after I arrived, after this first ride up Sharps Ridge to WATE, TV, I finalized the deal with WBIR-TV, which was Channel 10, a CBS affiliate. It not only had by far the strongest signal in the market, but it also saved Southeastern Wrestling because the station at the top of the mountain was just unhappy with me as I was with them, and they were ready to take me off the air entirely. In fact, the same day that I was going to notify them that I was leaving them and going to Channel 10, a big, huge television station uh, that I can get a new commentator on, uh, they notified me that they wanted to fire me. They were, were no longer wanted my program. So uh, it, was a, it, was, it was a coincidence that just worked out fabulously for me. Uh, that guy, the, the, the manager of the station at the top of Sharps Ridge, was calling me in his office to tell me that this is your last program. And I told him before he could say, get it out, the words out of his mouth, that no, this is the last program that I'm going to be on your station because I'm going to Channel 10, which was a much better station. So, uh, so you know, that also, you know, not only did I come up with the strongest signal in the market, 
But uh, now I can change my commentator. I got rid of the warp your head off old guy, and I replaced him with an extremely qualified Les Thatcher as my commentator. Uh, if not for my searching and finding this new television station, I would have been out of business absolutely for certain. Southeastern would have died that day. Uh, that uh, that station was about to turn me loose and say you're not going to be on the air with us any longer. John Kazana would have gotten his wrestling company back and wrestling history would have been changed forever. There would have never been a Southeastern wrestling past six months. Uh, I would have been out of business and gone. So I definitely consider the television situation another goal accomplished in 1975. Uh, in retrospect, as you look back with the benefit of almost 45 years of hindsight here, how close did you come to not making it? Very, very close. Uh, I, I never went, I never had to go back and borrow any more money, but I never really had any money. I was not in this situation that financially that I was in Florida for many years there, which I was working on top. And I also was uh, running the uh, West Palm Beach uh, Auditorium for the Florida Territory and uh, being paid for that as well, making, like I said, 2000 a week. I went from 2000 a week down to, to scraping out uh, two or 300 a week if I was lucky. And uh, it it changed my life for me, but it gave me real perspective and it taught me uh, several things. It taught me that I could survive no matter what. Uh, that I, I had the instincts and I had the ability uh, and I just I had the drive and the determination. Uh, I was not going to fail. Uh, I even had my my father and, and Eddie Graham fly me into Tampa to offer to buy me out because, you know, you're not going to make it. We see you're not going to make it. And I turned them down. I said, no, you know, I know it's going to happen. And, and it was just about the late in 75 that I could see it was about to happen. But, uh, yeah, it, yeah, I was very, very close to, in the answer to your question to being, to being broke. Okay, second question, the hypothetical. What happens, uh, you obviously you want to get rid of Jim Hess. What happens if Les, Les Thatcher, for whatever reason, was not available? Who was an alternative choice for you, or did you have one? I had none. I had none. But, uh, you know, Les and I had been friends for many years. When I came to Florida in 1970, Les was in the Florida crew. He was a young guy. Uh, we got along really great, became very close friends, spent a lot of time together. We rode up and down the highways talking about televisions was one of our subject matter. You know, and he was a big, he, he really had phenomenal ideas for creating a great television program. So... He was my first thought. He happened to be working for me. As soon as I came to Knoxville, he lived in Charlotte. He wasn't working full-time for Crockett. He would come over and wrestle for me. He was recruiting guys. He brought Nelson Royal across the mountains uh, and worked for me. Uh, he helped me get talent. And uh, there, was never, there was never in my mind another choice other than Les Thatcher. And what we accomplished at that station, that new station in 1975, from basically uh, middle of May in 1975 to the end of 75 uh, was absolutely phenomenal. I mean, we had the best television program in America. It didn't, I would have put it up against anybody's and everybody agreed. 
when I went to NWA meetings, I, I was going to become a member when I went to those meetings. Every year they wanted me to talk about what I did with my television program, how we do instant replays, how we do split screens, how we do all these things that we were doing and the only ones doing them. So, uh, you know, we, we, uh, Les and I partnered up and uh, committed to each other, and we made that the best television program in wrestling for many, many years. Okay, this seems like a great place to take our break, Ron. Now let's hear from David Summers about the fantastic Super Stud Cast number 24 with the exotic Adrian Street. As of yesterday, part two of our interview with Adrian Street is now available. There may not be a better wrestling story anywhere than the real life of exotic Adrian Street that has now become a movie in Europe. Part two continues the fascinating Super Studcast number 24 at tnstud.com or patreon.com slash studcast. A coal miner's son that rebels and becomes a professional wrestler despite his size and background is only the beginning. He conquers European champions, changes his style, look, and who knows what else before conquering Africa and then coming to North America. His absolutely unbelievable three hours with his great friend and former boss, the Tennessee Stud, may well be the best wrestling podcast in history. From Elton John, David Bowie, Bob Dylan, and millions of fans worldwide, Adrian Street is not just a star, but an idol. At tnstud.com or patreon.com slash studcast for only $2.99, the best deal in wrestling. You may have never taken a Super Studcast ride with Ron before, but this one is like riding a buck. They are talking all over the world about this one at Tennessee, or I'm sorry, tnstud.com or patreon.com slash studcast. Okay, Ron, where are we going from here? Well, we're going to Southeastern Wrestling, going to attempt to join the NWA in 1975. And this is my fifth goal of the the year. Uh, Once I sat down in early 75 and started to put these goals down for myself, and I think uh, for anybody that owns a company, especially a new company, I think this is vital for you. You need to set goals and uh, you either make them or you don't. But if you don't, you never know what you're missing and you and you just you're not handling business properly being an owner of a company if you don't have some kind of goals each year when you get started. So, you know, we're going to talk about the fifth goal that I set early in the year 1975, for the year 1975. I made a request to Sam Mutchick, president of the NWA, immediately following my first night as an owner uh, of Southeastern Championship Wrestling, the newest wrestling company in the world. On that particular day, it certainly was. Sam and I had a tremendous relationship because of my regularly working his legendary wrestling city of St. Louis. I wrestled in St. Louis 30 times in 1973 and eight times in 1974. St. Louis was unlike any other city in America, in the world, because he was the president of the NWA. He didn't have a crew. He brought in the stars of America, show after show. And it was extremely unusual for him to get stuck with one person that he really liked. And uh, for whatever reason, Sam really took a liking to me. And as I said, I worked 30 times in 1973 in St. Louis, unheard of. So I had a tremendous relationship with Sam. He respected me as a young guy. I think he could see something in me. And I love Sam. I had 
tremendous respect for Sam and what he had accomplished in his time in wrestling. Uh, it would have been many more times in 1974 than eight if it had not been for Bill Watts, who was booking in Florida at that time in 1974. And, uh, and he told Sam, I wasn't available because I was the Florida champion. I was the Florida heavyweight champion. And, uh, Bill Watts didn't want to let me go to St. Louis and stay there on Friday and Saturday and Sunday. He had better towns for me to be in. He needed me in Florida and he sold Sam that. So, uh, it cut my dates in St. Louis, but I really was happy about it because Florida was on fire because of Dusty Rhodes' turn in 1974. So I'd worked in, worked in St. Louis with everybody. I mean, almost everybody of, of huge stature, uh, from the former world champions Pat O'Connor and Gene Kaninsky to Johnny Valentine, Terry Funk, uh, Big Bill Miller, Hans Schmidt, uh, Tokyo Joe, uh, Ivan Koloff. Danny Miller, Bobo Brazil, Black Jack Lanza, Baron Cicluna, Harley Race. I mean, that just went on and on and on. And I'm only 26 years old when I'm working with these guys. Nobody gets a shot to do that. Nobody gets to go to St. Louis and work 30 times in one year at 26 years old. I was just, uh, it was an honor for me. To be there, and uh, and it just showed a lot of respect uh, that Sam was giving me to see that maybe I had the talent. You know, there was talk that I'm being, you know, I've been I'm being uh, set for the future to be world heavyweight champion. You know, when you got to work in St. Louis on a regular basis, you were potentially. That's how Jack Briscoe got there. And Jack was in Florida when I went there in 1970, and uh, I knew it that uh, that he got his belt because he Sam liked him and because he got over in St. Louis. Well, obviously, if you're working 30 times a year in that town, I got over pretty damn good there as well. So, you know, I knew that there could be that possibility, but I wanted to run my own company like my dad and my granddad had. So Sam pushed. Right away, I'm telling for for Southeastern Wrestling to become admitted to the NWA. They pushed for me big time because he 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 liked me and he he wanted me to see me as a promoter. I think he felt like I maybe could be a great promoter. You know, my dad and my granddad certainly had pedigree, so maybe he felt like I could do it too. So we got pushed and we got admitted as soon as possible. I mean, Southeastern Wrestling had its first NWA title match less than three months after applying and being admitted to the NWA. It was the fastest world title match given ever to a new member of the NWA. It was a record time. Within three months of asking, can I become part of the NWA? I had a world championship match. I was not only a part of it, I had the champion in my Coliseum. Uh, and hey, actually, it was the first time anybody had ever run in that Coliseum. So I would wrestle Jack Briscoe myself the second time he came to Knoxville as the NWA world champion in April of 1975. So joining the NWA to me was another big goal that I accomplished in 1975. My sixth goal was to begin to run matches in the Coliseum that we just talked about. As soon as possible, I wanted to go in there. The previous promoter, John Kazana, he had never held a match there. I believe before I ever purchased Knoxville that for the city to ever be recognized as a major wrestling market in America, it was absolutely imperative 
that you hold, not just in the match in the Coliseum, but I set my sights on being able to draw enough people in that building to hold every event in that Coliseum. Uh, it was a dream of mine, you know, and it was a goal of mine not just to get in the Coliseum, but to stay in that building. So less than three months after Southeastern Wrestling held its first match, we were in that Knoxville Coliseum. Not only were we there, but Jack Briscoe, like I said, defended the NWA title against Nelson Royal in a one-hour time limit draw that was a phenomenal match, absolutely tremendous match. Uh, and on that card, I had a tremendous supporting card as well. I wrestled against Bill Watts. I beat Bill Watts. Ron Wright beat Don Kent. Eddie and Mike Graham lost to Dutch Mantell and John Foley. The fabulous Moolah defended her world title and beat Vicki Williams. Danny Hodge drew Les Thatcher in a 30-minute great time limit draw match. Dale Lewis beat Steve Kern. Uh, to me, the Coliseum was much more than just a building. Filling it, to me, was going to be proof to everyone in the Knoxville area uh, and Southeastern Wrestling and all of those detractors that had said, oh, you paid too much, uh, you, you'll never make it, you'll never get your money back, all that type of stuff. I knew that if we could ever fill that building up, it would be proof that wrestling in Knoxville, Southeastern Wrestling, was, had truly grown mainstream in that city. And it happened in the spring of 1977. Uh, less than two years later than we're talking about when Harley Race is going to defend the world title against me. We not only sold out the building, we turned away thousands of fans. And it was the largest crowd ever to see a sports event of any kind in that building, ever. And that record still holds. 42 years later, we still hold the record for the Coliseum for the biggest sports event ever. In fact, we hold the top two. I wrestled him again in 78, and we were the second biggest crowd ever in there. So, again, we accomplished another goal in 75 uh, that I had set. Seventh goal, to bring wrestling to smaller cities across the southeastern area that had never seen the sport live before. In doing so, I'm, I, had to be, I had to create a territory. I needed to create a territory, so I needed these smaller cities. So I would be creating my territory that would have me wrestling six nights a week like other territories around the world. It was obviously a big step for Southeastern because it would produce the kind of payoffs for wrestlers that would give Southeastern wrestling the opportunity to have the best in the sport representing it every night. It would also give its fans some of the best wrestling in the world. It had begun, had begun the process early in 75 by recruiting hundreds of high schools in the southeastern area to allow us to use their gyms in exchange for money they could use to fund their needs. Uh, and they certainly needed money. That's a very poor part of the country, and those schools needed money very badly. I'm very proud of this idea that I came up with and, uh, and what it did for so many schools that badly needed help. During the five years, between 1975 and 1979, that we ran this high school program in the Southeastern Wrestling Territory, we contributed over $300,000 a year to high schools 
In the five years, we contributed over a million and a half dollars in a five-year period to high schools in the southeastern United States. Uh, we brought the sport to millions of people in small cities across the southeastern United States. It was the proverbial win-win for everybody that program was. I feel it was another goal that I accomplished in 75. And this goal not just paid dividends for me, it paid dividends to schools and uh, to fans, to all kinds of different people in that part of the country. So the eighth goal is I wanted to change the perception of the sport in the area in which Southeastern operated. Uh, that was the eighth goal of mine for 1975. To accomplish this takes a long time, a lot of hard work in the ring, and it takes wrestlers with great talent that can make it happen. When I arrived in Knoxville, the owner of the new wrestling company, I was shocked at the fan base and what they wanted to see happen each night in the ring. They were much more interested in lots of blood rather than actual great wrestling matches with beautiful moves. It takes time to convert fans like that into ones that appreciate lots of wrestling. Those fans that have seen a lot of blood and a lot of fighting, they don't really appreciate wrestling, but you can make it happen. And I wanted to, and I was really I was really gung-ho to do that. I think the mindset that I had about how fans perceived the sport went way back as far as my grandfather, Roy. Uh, there were different types of wrestling matches occurring all over America, as far back as the professional sport goes. Back in my grandfather's day, 1924 is when he started uh, as a pro, everyone was a shooter. You didn't get to be a wrestler in the 1920s if you couldn't shoot. And it was no chance. He had zero, zero chance. Uh, so matches look real because most of the match was real. You know, I mean, uh, so real that wrestlers, they had to learn to lighten up on each other or they weren't going to be able to survive the punishment night after night. Uh, they were going out there and shooting most of the matches and they were getting hurt so bad that, you know, they couldn't work every night and they wanted to work every night. So, uh, when the sport started developing territories in the late 1920s and into the 30s, wrestlers wanted to make money every night. They wanted to work in these territories. Uh, big cities had only had been the only place to see wrestling in the early days, back before the 20s and into the 20s. But when territories came around, it started to create interest in the smaller cities as well. And wrestlers wanted to do their thing. They wanted to get payoffs night after night. They wanted to wrestle that five, six times a week. By the time my father started in the late 40s, the sport had changed a great deal. You know, a lot of fewer, a lot fewer wrestlers knew how to shoot, and therefore the style of the matches had changed dramatically. Uh, now, instead of the on-the-mat stuff and doing a lot of shooting moves, a lot of beautiful wrestling moves, you had the drop kicks and the high spots involving the use of the ropes to add excitement. Uh, for the new style of wrestling, it had changed already. Also, gimmicks became more popular, such as Gorgeous George, who I think probably changed the sport more than any other wrestler in its history. Uh, wrestlers like Luthez, the bona fide wrestlers and shooters, became less popular as the sport grew away from that shooting style. More blood was seen in matches starting in the 40s. Uh, by the time I started, few, very few guys, I started in 1970, very few guys knew how to shoot, period. They knew nothing about it. Uh, it was no longer a necessity to have a shooting background to be able to become a wrestler. And blood in matches was even more popular when I started. 
When I arrived in Knoxville, I was introduced to a style of professional wrestling that was so foreign to me, man. Having come from a territory like Florida where wrestling was the name of the game, they weren't doing that type of wrestling in Knoxville, nor were they doing it in Tennessee or many, many other territories around the country at that point. The Briscoes, Bob Root, Don Curtis, Eddie Graham, Lester Welch, Hiro Matsuda, my father, and countless other wrestlers with shooting backgrounds dominated the Florida Territory and the direction that that territory was moving. They always wanted to have a lot of wrestling in Florida. Knoxville wrestling, on the other hand, was dominated by the Wright brothers and the Fargos, the gimmick guys, and lots of blood. Right away, I began to try and change the style of wrestling to more like that Florida style. Uh, I wanted to keep some of the Knoxville stars, like the Wright brothers. I had to, because if I'd have made a quick and drastic change to wrestling and got away from everything that the, that the that current fan base liked, it'd have been catastrophic to my business. He would have killed it. I wouldn't have made it. So I did it over a period of time. In 1975, I brought in Danny Hodge. I brought in Dale Lewis. I brought in Nelson Royal and those great type shooters to begin to infuse more real wrestling into my matches. As time went on, I slowly moved the style of wrestling back in the direction of my father and my grandfather in Knoxville. I think that move, along with the move to the Coliseum, brought wrestling into the mainstream in Knoxville and in Southeastern, and it created fans of the sport that would have never been interested otherwise. Uh, you would have never got those uh, people that were they're more intellectual and it had a little more money they, they would have never got into that type of wrestling that was being produced and given to them in the early seventies. And by bringing in some of these legitimate stars and the legitimate wrestling taking place, it changed everything for Knoxville with Southeastern. Those new fans, they increased obviously the size of the crowds that made us available and uh, gave us the ability to go to the Coliseum and stay there every night and be there every week. It made Southeastern more successful every time we ran an event because the crowds grew and grew and grew. It just kept getting bigger. Uh, I was not able to totally accomplish the change in style of wrestling in 1975. Not couldn't be done in one year. It takes time to make that happen. But I moved it considerably in that direction. I felt really good about that. Uh, so as, as listeners to today's podcast can hear, uh, it, it's been a mixed bag of victories and defeats in reaching my goals for 1975. My final goal of the year, uh, when 1975 started, was to stay healthy. I had managed to do that for five and a half years when 1975 began. I, like all wrestlers, I'd been hurt on many occasions, but, but the injuries I had did not cause me to miss a single match in my career in the first five and a half years. I had a cauliflower ear. I chipped some teeth. I had many stitches, numerous muscle aches and pains. I bursted the sacks in both my elbows. Um, I had mat burns that bled night after night until they finally healed. I had black eyes from shots to the head, twisted knees that swelled a little, dislocated fingers, and occasionally aching shoulders. But nothing kept me from making the next town. Then all of a sudden, in late August of 1975, after five and a half years of pure health in the sport, I received the worst injury in my career. I was dropped on my head trying to do a move that I had developed myself 
after coming back from Australia in 1973, and I had only done it one time, live in the ring. I was not only dropped on my head, but the guy that dropped me on my head fell on top of me with 250 pounds, hard enough to drive my collarbone out of its socket in my sternum and into the interior part of my chest. It was an irreparable injury that never could be uh, never could be repaired. <laughs> Nothing you could do to help repair it. In fact, I was told by doctors in the hospital that examined me that my career was over. It was also extremely painful when I worked my way out of it. Uh, 24 hours a day, the pain was there, and it took months to repair itself. I had spent the entire summer of 75 getting heat on two heels, the assassin and rock hunter, preparing for my turn from heel to babyface. It was the most important angle of Southeastern year in 1975, and a great deal of thought and time had gone into it, believe me. When I bought Knoxville, I always had in the back of my mind that when I turned babyface, I needed to become the biggest star in the territory because I owned the business, and I was the only wrestler I could depend on to always be there every night if I needed to be. I needed to be that star in my own company, as so many other wrestlers had been in their own territories, such as Eddie Graham in Florida, Fritz Von Erich in Dallas, Dick the Bruiser in Indianapolis, the Sheik in Detroit, my grandfather in Tennessee, and my father in all of his territories. I had actually turned baby faces two weeks before this bad injury, but I had not really begun to get the benefits of my turn because I had not yet booked myself against either of the two heels that had caused my injury and caused me to turn. That was where the money was going to be made for me, as well as my future as a top babyface in my own company, against those two heels that I had spent a summer building heat on to do this angle. But the injury denied me that extremely important once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to get over right then when you get that turn. Talk about bad timing. It was the ultimate bad timing. I had to slide my brother into my spot, and I watched from the dressing room every night as my grand opportunity passed me by. God, it was horrible. Uh, oh, yes. Yeah, yeah. I still eventually got to wrestle both of those guys, but only a couple of times before they left Southeastern. Instead of getting several wins over after both of them, after I built that heat on them to be able to get myself over really strong as a baby face, uh, they were gone all of a sudden. I felt like I had accomplished less than half of what I could have if I had not been injured. Uh, it really set me back, uh, in not just psychologically, but physically, too. While I was injured, I did wrestle. I wrestled for Jerry Jarrett, another territory, uh, other than mine a few times, and, you know, to fulfill a promise that I made to him months earlier. I'm glad it wasn't Southeastern that I wrestled in because I was hurt so badly I couldn't perform up to my standards. And it would have hurt me as a future star there because people would have gone, God, this guy's not that good, you know? So uh, it was one of the most disappointing periods of my entire wrestling career. As 1976 approached, I was finally becoming able to do what I had been able to do all my career. But that all-important opportunity to get myself over that first time was lost to me forever. I never got past it. Uh, it just it stayed with me for many, many years. Uh, I would definitely say, though, that my goal of staying healthy in 1975 was definitely not accomplished. That's for certain. 
Ron, Ron, when you look when you look back, uh, what do you feel like was your biggest accomplishment in 1975, and what was your biggest disappointment? Well, the biggest accomplishment, I think, uh, was the television situation. I turned around something there that that made all the difference in the world. Uh, it did it, it, nothing that I could have done in 1975 would have been more important than that. I moved away from a bad commentator a weak television station with a weak signal to the biggest station in the market, a tremendous commentator, and developed in the meantime the greatest wrestling product, uh, television product in the world. Uh, so, yeah, definitely biggest accomplishment with TV. Uh, and my greatest disappointment and my or my biggest disappointment, obviously, is, is the loss of my family. Uh, you know, that... That uh, you, you don't get over that. You never get past that. You know, I mean, I, I still have my sons. I still, you know, and uh, and I, you know, and I, I was married again. Uh, so, you know, it's not like I gave it up forever. But, uh, you know, I really wanted to make a success out of that first marriage. And uh, my greatest disappointment, I think, was not being able to do that. Okay, is there anything else uh, you'd like to say about 1975 or about the upcoming year of 1976? Uh, yeah, Jeff, I think I would. I, I would like to say something about the regular weekly studcast, uh, starting the very next program uh, as we start to talk about Southeastern wrestling in 1976. You know, it seems like I've begun to be recognized as a, as a wrestling historian for whatever reason. And because of my family's background and mine as an owner, a booker and a wrestler in several territories, uh, I guess, you know, I, I do have some knowledge of, you know, and, and, you know, because my family's the biggest and the, the oldest and the largest in the history of the sport, obviously I definitely have some history there. You know, and I know quite a bit of history about uh, territories and wrestlers and all that type of thing. So I'm, I've been very flattered by this, that people feel like, you know, that, I, that I'm a pretty decent wrestling historian. So uh, I want to do it enough. I want to explain to fans what, in my opinion, has made this great sport we all love so popular. And, and yet in some cases, it's, it's, it's so dramatically changed over the last 20 or 30 years too, you know. So beginning next week, uh, we enter Southeastern Wrestling's 1976 year. I, I want to end every episode of these regular stud casts with a little segment that I'm going to call Under the Studs Learning Tree. And I'm going to do my best uh, each week to illustrate and educate fans uh, by taking them inside the business and letting them look at what has made the sport uh, so intoxicating to all of us. Why we all love our wrestling and why do we love our old school as compared to the new? And uh, and uh, I'll be taking any questions from listeners via all the social media outlets that you're going to be talking about here at the close of the program. You can leave your questions for me there that you have. And I'll test uh, the pick some questions out from fans and I'll end every program uh, with this uh this, uh, you know, learning tree, you know, where I can spend a few minutes, uh, whatever time it takes on a particular subject to maybe uh, make fans, ha have them give fans an opportunity to see things from a different point of view. And they ask me these questions about what happened to this and why is it not like it used to be? Uh, I want to explain those type of things. So this studcast is, today's studcast going to be released 
on uh, January 1st. Uh, you know, when people are listening to it, a Happy New Year, because you are the first to hear this particular studcast, and it is January 1st in 2020. I want to wish, before we close the day, all my studcast and all my super studcast fans worldwide a very happy and healthy and prosperous New Year. Okay, Ron, I tell you what, before we go home, uh, I would like to ask you a question uh, because I feel like people come come to this uh, podcast for a history lesson. And so I'd like you to offer uh, a history lesson. Uh, my friend Scott Hudson, who was an announcer for WCW uh, yesterday on his Facebook page, re released a list of all those wrestlers that we had lost in 2019. And one of the names that struck me uh, that I knew you would have a, a history with uh, was the late Leon Baxter, who passed away on August 15th uh, at the age of 89 years old. The wrestling pro, Leon Baxter. So before we leave, if you could just share some memories, some thoughts uh, about Leon Baxter. Yes. Uh, I knew very, Leon Baxter very well. My father knew him extremely well. Leon Baxter learned how to wrestle from my father. My father trained Leon Baxter in the late 1950s. Uh, Leon Baxter, they called him Tarzan, uh, and he was strong. He, and he was not only strong, but he really learned to shoot. He became a tremendous shooter. Uh, he went around the country for years. No one could beat him. In fact, he did those type of matches in which he would wrestle two or three people out of the crowd night after night after night. No one ever came close to beating Tarzan Baxter. Uh, Leon wrestled for me when I bought the Gulf Coast Territory in 1978, a lot in 78 and 79. He was called the Wrestling Pro. That was his name. He wore a white outfit and a white hood. Uh, he worked for me quite a bit. He worked for me. He's going to be working for me. We're talking about 1976. He and Dick Dunn are going to be a tag team for me in 1976 uh, and uh, they're called the Superstars. And my great friend, Brian Last, you know, sent me a photo today. And uh, it's just funny that it happens to be we're having this conversation. It was a, a picture that uh, Don Carson ran in the paper in Knoxville of Ron Wright, who had a big, huge, busted right eye, and it was all black. And on the picture, it said, uh, it said, uh, I, I want to thank my friends, uh, the superstars, one and two, which was Dick Dunn and Tarzan Baxter, Leon Baxter, who you brought up here, uh, for busting the eye of this hillbilly, Ron Wright. And he said, Don Carson goes on in this little article and says, and I want to offer another $500 prize for anyone who will bust the other one. <laughs> so, you know, it was like, so Leon, Leon Baxter was a legit athlete, a legit shooter. Uh, he could do it all. Uh, he had a phenomenal long running career as a wrestler. He is so well respected and admired was, I should say, in the entire Alabama, Florida panhandle area, Georgia, uh, and around the country, wherever he went. And he went many, many places to wrestle in his career, uh, was a fantastic wrestler and, uh, one of the greatest of all time. And, uh, Glad you brought him up today.
Okay, thanks, Ron, for all our listeners. Here is where fans can reach you on social media. Uh, on Facebook, Ron Fuller, the Tennessee Stud. Simply like the stud on that page, and you are automatically friends with a legend. On Twitter, Ron Fuller Welch. Super Studcast number 24, parts 1 and 2 with the exotic Adrian Street are now available at tnstud.com or patreon.com slash studcast. Three hours of history for only $2.99. The best deal in wrestling. Ron, where are we going next week? Well, we're going to open the book on Southeastern Wrestling in 1976. Uh, this is going to be the year that Southeastern will begin to become the king of all sports in the Southeastern United States. We're going to beat on television. We're going to beat every football game. It doesn't make any difference what's on at 2 o'clock on Saturday afternoons in Knoxville, Tennessee. You're going to be watching. 80% of those people watching TV are going to be watching wrestling. Uh, fans are going to have the opportunity to sit under the learning tree on the very next studcast, and hopefully throughout uh, these, the year of 1976, as we're talking about these matches and all those things in 76, uh, we're going to have that segment, the learning tree segment, on the end of every program. Uh, and I'd like to thank everyone again out there for your support your continued support and I'm humbled by everything that happens here on this program and all the people who listen to me worldwide. And I'd like to wish you all a happy new year. Okay. Well, for uh, our host, Ron Fuller and for producer, sweet Lou Kippelman, the studcast is a production of the Arcadian Vanguard podcast network. Happy new year folks. And until next week, when the ride continues, thanks for joining us today for this historic studcast. The true story continues next week. So full Nelson, your friends, and point them in our direction for another ride with the Tennessee Stud. One, two, three. This is David Summers saying so long from the Great Smoky Mountains. <laughs>